You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We'll be in verses uh, 1 through 12. Uh, yeah, follow along with me in your Bibles. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I want to pray over God's word before I preach. Father, uh, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of your word, and the power of your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would come now over the next few moments and that you would just give us your spirit of illumination, that you would, um, like a light, shine light on your word and use your word like a light to shine into our hearts. And that you would reveal hidden places deep within our hearts that need um, your presence. Places of woundedness, need healing, places of hardness where we need softening, places of rebellion where we need obedient faith, places of weariness, strength. And I pray that you would come and do that, power of your spirit through the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that you would help our hearts to respond to you to respond to Jesus who came in this season, God in the flesh, to live, to die, resurrected, return to heaven and to send us your spirit that we might be strengthened to live in obedience. I pray that you would just do all of that over the next few moments as we study your word. What an impossible thing for me to do as a human. It makes that this is more than possible. In fact, it's what you desire to do and want to do. It's what makes you look so good. 
come and do that, we ask. So we've been in this, uh, uh, this, uh, this book, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, uh, been there over the last uh, few weeks, so we're just continuing our way through the um, first couple of chapters this week, right? Just continuing our study, um, really through the story of Jesus' birth. Since it's that season, it's Christmas, and you might recall that over the last two weeks, um, we did chapter one. Um, and as we studied uh, chapter 1, we learned in that first week that uh, when humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen. You might remember that. When humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen. Miraculous superhuman things like uh, God coming and reorienting our human plans through his own plan of divine redemption, Right? We learned that, and then last week when Todd was here, as he worked through the genealogy, which as I listened to that message was powerful, right? How do you take a list of names that are hard to pronounce, preach something that is just spirit and power and turned us back to the gospel? I mean, at my summary of what Todd's big idea was there is that here, here Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the generations. Dual meaning to the word fulfill. Fulfillment of the generations. Filled full of the power of Christ and the resurrection, right? And that's a powerful message. Learn that from the first chapter. Now this part of the story, as we look at chapter 2, uh, it's really a story of responses. That's really what this story is. Like that's probably the word that you could write down somewhere if you want to try to capture the entirety of of this sermon in a word, response. And there's really a question here underneath all of this that Matthew is wrestling with. What Matthew wants to do all the way throughout his gospel is present Jesus as the king. And in, 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 in the story that he shares of Jesus' birth, he's really trying to ask this question or answer this question, how do you respond to the birth of Jesus? That's really the question. How do you respond to the birth of Jesus? Now, we all have a tendency to respond differently when things happen, right? For example, if you're watching the Super Bowl, which some of us I know here do, watching the Super Bowl and your team is winning, you're going to respond how? Joy, right? Excitement, anticipation. I've seen some people get up and like jump around, hoot and holler, run around the house. I mean, it can get pretty exciting in the final moments of the Super Bowl if your team's winning. Um, but at the same time, somebody else in the room might have a completely different response when their team is losing and your team is winning. Agreed? And it's the same way with, with Christmas. We all, we all respond to things differently, and, and Christmas has a tendency to evoke different responses in different people. I want you to think for a minute about your feelings towards Christmas response what's the birth of jesus this celebration of the birth of jesus christmas that what does that evoke within you because some people have a tendency to get excited some people have a tendency to get sad some people um, get indifferent some people even get angry around christmas right like i know people that get really angry why would people get angry well for a lot of reasons but one of them that i know of people get really angry because jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th, right? 
Christmas trees are from the devil. Did you know those are from like a pagan religion? I mean, you just get all this weird debate going on. It's like, man, you missed the point. It's about Jesus. Seriously, go have the debate with someone else, right? So, so again, uh, the response to Christmas, the response to Jesus' birth um, can be varied. It can, uh, it can be different. And in our passage today, there's at least three different responses, okay? <laughs> at least three. I say that. There's going to be four points that we're going to work through. Um, but there's basically three groups of people who respond to Jesus. You have the response of Herod and the people of Jerusalem. That's going to be number one. We have the response of religious leaders. That'll be number two. And we have the response of the wise men. That'll be number four. And notice I missed number three because we're going to come back and look at the response of the king uh, in, in the middle of that, too. So there really are basically three responses, but there's kind of four. It's just that we're going to talk about the same guy twice. Get it? Okay. Laying it forward for you so you know kind of where we're, we're headed. So first, what I want us to do is I want us to think about the response of King Herod and the people of Jerusalem, right? Verses 1 through 3. What Matthew tells us here is that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, or, or in Bethlehem, sorry, in the days of Herod the king. I get excited to get my words all mixed up. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. Now, now this might seem like, as you're looking at this, thinking about this, pondering this, might seem like just a descriptive comment that, that like merely gives us just a date stamp for Jesus' birth. Oh yeah, that guy was the king. It's kind of like Trump was the president when this kid was born. Might just kind of give you that, that date stamp for Jesus' birth. But honestly, it's more than that. It's more than just a date stamp. Of this little tidbit of information about who was the king during this time gives us an indication of the social climate um, of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. Now here's the thing. The interesting thing is this, is that Jesus didn't um, decide to arrive at a time when the nation was at its best. Truth be told, if you were to follow that out, he didn't come and reveal himself to you when you were at your best either. He came to us when we were at our worst. You could argue that Jesus chose to come during one of the most tumultuous times in the nation of Israel because King Herod was the leader of that nation. I don't know what you know about King Herod, but King Herod was a ruthless man. He was a barbaric man. And we know that leaders um, are responsible for influencing the culture of the groups of people that they lead. Right? Pastors of churches, leaders of businesses, presidents of nations, fathers in households and mothers, responsible for the kind of climate and culture that happens inside of the groups of people that they lead. And over the course of history, I think that principle rings true over and over and over again. You can see it if you just look, right? I think if you were to study our country over the last 10 or 15 years, I think you'd see the same thing too. It's true. Uh, with Israel under the leadership of King Herod um, as well. As I said already, King Herod is a brutal man. Not a good man. He didn't fear God at all. What King Herod had done is he had built himself an empire for himself. He had built himself an empire of wealth and power. And if you study King Herod a little bit, you'll find this guy actually murdered some of his own children just so that they couldn't succeed him to the throne. 
How sick of a man do you have to be? Right? So when King Herod heard uh, from, the, from the wise men, right? He heard the wise men were in town. They're there to visit Jesus. They're coming through town. They're asking about this baby king of the Jews. And what do you think his response is? Right? His insecurity and his, his fear begins to tip the scales. And what Matthew tells us is that King Herod, along with all of Israel, were troubled. Isn't that interesting? That when they hear that King Jesus is born, that the king, Herod, and all of Israel are troubled when they hear the news. Troubled when they hear that a new king is in town. Now, like, put yourself in in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem. Put yourself in their shoes. They're under the leadership of this man who is troubled by this. So the natural response of the people that he leads is to be troubled as well. Why? Why? I think people in Jerusalem were living in fear at that point. They're living in fear because they realize that something is happening in their culture that could push their barbaric, ruthless leader over the edge. And in fact, as we study this out, we'll come back next week to the latter half of chapter 2, you'll see that that's exactly what happened, right? King Herod leads an an all-out annihilation of baby boys. Post-birth abortion taking place in that culture. All because he was insecure and fearful and troubled because he heard a rumor, more than a rumor, a true story. There was a king that had just been born. Think about this in terms, you think about everything I've just described. Maybe think about this in terms of your family. Or think about this in terms of your gospel community or your, your church community. Think about, think about what can happen in the heart of you or, or leaders in your community, in your family, when something threatens or someone threatens your control, or your power, or your influence. What what happens in the heart of someone that is ruled by fear when that person is confronted with this truth that Jesus has come to be our king? Our Emmanuel God with us, and our king. King Herod's response was to call the religious leaders together. That's what he does. Get me some religious folks to come in and advise me. Tell me what's going on. Find out what the heck is happening with this story about this new king. So that's number two. Think about the response of the religious leaders. This is interesting as you track your way through it. See the religious leaders in verses 4 through 6. Matthew basically tells us that King Herod gathered all the chief priests and the scribes together so that he can find out where this new baby king is to be born. Right? Interesting. Seems like it would be the right thing for him to do. Gather some religious folks together. They should have some answers about this thing, right? I think it's important for us to note first that uh, the chief priests and the scribes, um, both of those groups of leaders were both social and religious. They weren't merely social and they weren't only religious. They were both. Um, Both groups were primarily religious leaders who had massive social connections. So they were responsible for influencing the culture of the city, and the community that they were part of. But 
it's good for us to know, too, that there are from two completely, vastly different ends of the social and religious spectrum. Chief priests were very, very, very conservative leaders. And the scribes were highly liberal leaders. Guys were always at each other's throats, always making snide comments. If there was Facebook back then, that's what you would see. Tons and tons and tons of Facebook posts against each other because they were all certain that they had the right corner on the market in their conservative or highly liberal, highly conservative or highly liberal standpoint. So what does King Herod do? Ruthless man that he is, brings these two groups of, of people together to get their opinion on what is going on. And I think his whole, his whole aim is to try to take baby Jesus out, right? Try to take King Jesus out because he's the king. doesn't want anybody to come and threaten that, try to take away his power and his control. But put yourself in the shoes of those uh, religious leaders. Think about how exciting it must have been to just be a religious person or even just be a religious leader in that time and have the king of the nation call for you to come and give him counsel. Put yourself in those shoes for a minute, right? Like you're literally being called to give the spiritual counsel to the president of the nation. Think about the emotional toll that this might take on you. Think of the emotional toll that this kind of experience would take on you. Think of, think of the, how, how the, this emotional toll on you would far surpass anything that you might feel when giving spiritual counsel to a friend or a family member or a co-worker or a neighbor. I mean, this is heavy stuff, right? The leader of a nation is calling you to tell him what's going on. Well, oftentimes when we're called upon for spiritual counsel, we might be tempted to feel afraid, might feel inadequate, some of us. Some of us might feel like we're in a pretty good position to uh, answer all the questions that somebody has for us because our Sunday school attendance was awesome, our Bible study classes were awesome, or whatever it may be, right? A few of us can read Greek a little bit, some more than others. We might feel like hey, I'm in a pretty good position to uh, answer these questions, right? Because I got stars on my chart. Um, these religious leaders in this text, they, they actually appear to get some things right, if you look at it. Right? They, they, didn't, they weren't wrong. And I followed the bunny trail on that for a little while, too. Like, if there's any group today that loves to be right, who do you think it is? Religious folks, <laughs> we love to be right, right? Don't we? Sometimes, I'd say a lot of times, being right is sometimes wrong. About that. When your being right actually causes harm to people, it's wrong. They actually get some things right. They actually point back to the prophets in their Bible, so that's kind of cool, right? Like, they actually pick up their Bible and they go back to it. Exciting day. Check marks on your chart. You picked up your Bible. What? Get it? Okay. You dusted it off. You used it to answer a question. This is awesome. You, you knew where to turn to. 
I'm being sarcastic for on purpose, right? I mean, these guys did that. They they did it. They did it well. <laughs> they did it well. They they explained. They pointed back to the prophets. They explained that the baby King Jesus was predicted to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Or they get a gold star on their Sunday school chart. They pass the Bible quiz, or they win it. Ding! Right? Now I'm being what's the word? Facetious. Facetious. <laughs> That sounds like a philosopher. They passed their Bible quiz, though. <laughs> I have no idea. Think about the irony of all this, though. These, these two groups of leaders from two vastly different backgrounds, okay? Um, and they had the same answer. They had the same answer as to who Jesus will be, where he's to be born, and and they even seem to agree on the same Bible passage to support their information. Right? That's a big day. Okay? That's a big, big day. But their response to the news of Jesus' birth is merely head knowledge. Merely head knowledge for their own self-advancement and their own self-promotion. That's all that's going on here with these guys. I mean, we don't even see these guys again, really. Till much later, after Jesus grows up and begins his public ministry, right? The guys that should have been on the winning team proved to be on the losing team, and actually the enemy team. They don't really show up until later with all their head knowledge. And when we do see them again, they're completely indifferent to Jesus. They're actually outright antagonistic. They're actually responsible for Jesus' death. That's a scary thing. I mean, why? Ask yourself this question. When the wise men left Jerusalem and they go and they find little baby Jesus, why weren't these religious leaders there in that room on their faces in exceeding joy, worshiping Jesus? Why weren't they? Why weren't they? Matthew, he tells this story for a reason. Get that. What is your response? Can you see how dangerous head knowledge divorced from actual true heart transformation? It's devastating. Like, think about how destructive it is to just pass along mere head knowledge without a heart transformation. Think about this in terms of how you might just pass on mere head knowledge to your friends or your family, your children. How about your coworkers? How about your neighbor? If this is all you or I live for, it's just head knowledge. Ding! Got it right. Of how wrong we could actually be. Devastating this could be. Think of how devastating this could be on an entire nation. Our nation. Think about the nation of Israel. Now, this is where I said there's a number three, right? In our three responses, there's going to be four. Kind of confusing. The way Matthew lays it out, if you look at verses seven through eight, you kind of see a response of King Herod again in the midst of all this, right? Like he, you see King Herod, the wise men have come into town and he's asking questions, not sure what to do. So he calls the religious leaders in town, calls them to come over. We see a little bit of response from the people in Jerusalem at that time, right? People of Israel. And then it kind of comes back to King Herod once again. We've got to revisit him. Matthew does this on purpose. After hearing from the religious leaders, um, King Herod, uh, who really, you know, he only has head knowledge. It's all he's got. 
And it's divorce from heart transformation. We, we covered that. But Keen Herod, along with everyone else involved, man, they should have responded in joy-filled exaltation and worship of the baby king who had come to be the ruling shepherd savior of the nation. That's what we should be seeing. That's the story gone right. Right? This is the way God created us to be, was to move that direction. But, but what Matthew shows us here, shows the religious leaders disappear from the story for a while. Shows us that the people of Jerusalem are hiding out in their houses. Shows us that King Herod becomes Jesus' greatest enemy for the moment. Greatest enemy. A King Herod becomes an instrument of Satan. He becomes a son of, a son of the devil. He becomes an enemy of the throne of God. He calls the wise men to come and meet with him secretly. He can get some more information. He can deceptively manipulate them into becoming his spies. See, regardless of how secret King Herod's hatred for Jesus appeared to be, uh, regardless of how secret King Herod's love for himself appeared to be, regardless of how secret his love for his own self-promotion seemed to be, that the truth is, is that this king, Herod, is an enemy of righteousness. That's what he is. No amount of meetings with religious people could change that at this point. No amount of false concern for the things of God could hide the fact that King Herod was actually an enemy of God at heart. King Herod was not interested in the worship of God. He was only interested in the worship of God. Think about how easy it is to manipulate your circumstances. Put yourself in King Herod's shoes just for a minute. Think about how easy it is to manipulate your circumstances because you don't want to bow your knee to a new king. You don't want to give control over to someone else. Maybe it's because you've been wounded at the hands of someone else. So the easiest way to protect yourself is to have control. I don't know what the reason might be. Think about how hard it is to give up control. Think about how easy it is to use your power, your, your influence. Think about how easy it is to use that for your own self-promotion, your own self-preservation, rather than the promotion and preservation of the worship of God. Like this is where the response of the wise men beautiful. What Matthew gives us here in the response of the wise men, this is where the gospel becomes beautiful. He gives us what should be the response of the heart of a true Christian, right? Think about the response of the wise men, verses 9 through 12. Now, the first thing we see is that the wise men listened to King Herod, and they went on their way. They listen to him, and then they go on their way. Now, this is an important thing, I think, to think about caught my attention like the wise men actually listened with their ears to the ruler of the nation and they saw right through his deception oh i wish more americans would do this wish his reputation as a ruthless man as a fear-filled man preceded him their hearts their eyes their ears were open Revelation from God, this leader was not to be trusted. Right? It's interesting to think the wise men weren't even religious people. Now, there is a principle of revelation here, I think, uh, in this that, that's important for us to remember. 
Uh, when we are faithful with the small things that God reveals to us, he reveals more of himself to us. Think about that. Principle of revelation. When, when we are faithful with what God reveals to us, the small things, he is faithful to continue revealing more things to us. This is the, the idea of progressive revelation. And if God were to drop complete revelation on you right now of all of his character, he'd probably kill you, burn you up, right? King Herod, I was thinking about this. King Herod, he didn't have any different revelation than anybody else had. King Herod had exactly the same revelation that the wise men had. The people of Jerusalem virtually had the same revelation as King Herod and the wise men had. The religious leaders, they had the same revelation too. Actually, you could argue that the religious leaders, the religious folks in our passage, they had more revelation. Why? Because there's no evidence, once again, that these wise men were actually um, religious men like the religious leaders that we see. And if you do a little bit of study, you find out that, number one, there weren't actually three wise men, so common heresy that, that we've probably seen about. There were, no, there were not three wise men. It was more likely a big, massive entourage. They had three kinds of gifts, though. The wise men were most likely pagan astrologers. They love the stars. They're from the east. Infatuated with the stars. They'd heard somehow these prophecies regarding the, the coming of the shepherd king sa- savior. Like in short, when you, when you think about these men and their response to the revelation that they had, these men were pagans, non-churchgoers. They were pagans in search of King Jesus. And as they proved faithful with the revelation that, that God gave them through the star, He would continue to reveal the true nature and intent of King Herod's heart to them. Now, now flip that around and contrast that with King Herod. In King Herod's case, he received revelation as well from the religious leaders, right? But he hardened his heart. In fact, his heart was already set towards destruction. You could almost say that maybe Herod was created as an instrument of destruction. You want to follow that out throughout Scripture? And God did what with him? Turned him over to the desires of his heart. He became an even more evil enemy of God. As you see the progression in the next text, he goes out and and murders baby. In the case of the wise men, though, God continued to reveal himself to them. And the outcome of his continual revelation was joy-filled worship. Matthew tells us that they continued their journey under the guidance of the star. And when they found baby Jesus, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they fell down and they worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. This is a picture of somebody being knocked flat on their face. The glory and the goodness. Gave gifts, gold and frankincense. Catch this sentence for me real fast. Like a heart that is moved to worship Jesus, filled with joy and surrender and generosity. And if you call yourself a worshiper of Jesus, but you walk around full of bitterness and resentment instead of joy, and you're walking around like all prideful and puffed up instead of surrendered and humble, if you're walking around like you're 
fists clenched around all your belongings and just greedily seeking more rather than being generous, you've got to ask the question, like, am I really a worshiper of King Jesus? The picture that we see here is that a worshiper is filled with joy and surrender and generosity. Now, you might ask, why does all this matter? What kind of significance does this passage and this story have on the lives of all of us gathered in this room, right? You've got single folks in this room who are just trying to make it through every day of just being single while desiring to be married. You've got people in marriage who love being married but have some rough days, right? You've got guys in here that are struggling with all sorts of purity issues, right? Right? Ladies, I know some of us are struggling with some emotional issues. I mean, you come to this with your own struggles as you come in here this morning. I don't have a clue where all of you are at, but I do know this. God's Word is designed to speak into that. And the Christmas season isn't just about what we've made it into in America. So what kind of significance does this passage have, and why does it matter for us? Why do we come around to this passage? The story matters because of this. Our response matters. This story matters because our response to the birth of Jesus matters. And our response to the birth of Jesus is often driven by the emotions and the desires of our hearts. When you are like King Herod, and when you're like the people of Jerusalem, you respond to King Jesus with fear and antagonism and anxiety. When you're like religious leaders, you respond to King Jesus with indifference that later becomes deadly. But when you're like the wise men, you respond to King Jesus with worship that is full of joy, surrender, generosity. Now the question you have to ask yourself, obviously, we don't want to be in the first two camps, do we? None of us wants to. Nobody wants to be in the King Herod camp. Nobody wants to be in the religious leader camp. Nobody wants to be hiding out in their houses like the people in Jerusalem. Everybody wants to be in the wise men camp, I think. Right? Even if you have questions about whether this is all true or not. You want to be in the camp of the wise because they seem like the good guys in the story and we want to be like the good guys but the question is why would you or i ever respond like the wise men and what would actually move our hearts to respond with joy and surrender and generosity i have to admit that that question is what's been haunting me for the last few weeks i personally struggle with a deep root of fear and a deep root of anxiety that's honestly rooted in a deep root of self-preservation. Catch all those roots deeper and deeper. Just follow the roots of what goes on in your heart and you might find something. I'm scared. I'm a fighter. I don't give up easily. Uh, I love to win. I love head knowledge. And honestly, more than that, I grew up in a home that was emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually volatile. I learned at a really young age that he who controls the temperature controls the atmosphere. So in the midst of all those loves, I don't know where you're at and what connects with you, what I just said, but in the midst of all those loves, loving all those things that are contrary to King Jesus being my ruler, in the midst of all those loves, I've got to ask again, like, what would make my heart turn away from fear and control and anxiety and self-preservation and winning? Why would I turn away from it? The answer that I found in this text is in verse 6, where the religious leaders tell Herod about the prophecy that pointed to Jesus' birth. Oh, how I wish these guys would have got what they were saying. And what they're doing is they're quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they say, you, 
O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Bethlehem was a small rural community. Very insignificant in terms of the nation's economy. Now, I don't, I don't know if any of you here struggle with a feeling of insignificance or a feeling of just being small and unseen. Can I just tell you that Jesus sees you? You're not unseen. You're not insignificant. How do I know that? Because I know a king who came like a baby to die for us. Set us free so that we can live in faithful obedience. That's how I know that. God takes small and insignificant things, small and insignificant people, small and insignificant experience, massive things to them. So I meditate on that truth, that Jesus came as a ruling, shepherding, king who would save. Contrast to the picture of King Herod, fearful, ruthless, insecure little man. My heart is awake, and I don't, I don't want to be. My heart's awake, and I'm moved to respond in worship. My heart is affected in those moments. I see the depth of my own sin there. I see how it's easy for me to be like King Herod. Or the religious I don't know which one you're more like. I beg you to be honest with yourself. If you're not honest with yourself about your sin, then you have no room for the grace of God in your life. So the truth is, for me, I find it much easier to be full of fear like King Herod. I find it much easier to hide out in my anxiety like the people of Israel. I find it much easier to be the guy with all the answers like the religious leaders. So honestly, <laughs> for a long time I lived like an outright antagonistic enemy of God like King Herod. I find myself in all of these camps much more than I find myself. I find it much more natural, easier to live in those spaces of sinfulness. But the good news of the whole story is that God in His grace came and revealed Himself to me, right? Rescued me through the message of the Gospel. And in the midst of that, by His Spirit, is training my heart to rejoice at the good news that even though I lived as His enemy, Jesus came at a time when things didn't look so good in my heart. That's the good news of the Gospel that He's done in me. And my job as a preacher is to testify to that in front of you so that your heart may be evoked to worship and to praise and to, and, and to fall on your face in front of Him in exceeding joy as well. At the right time, God came and revealed Himself to me. Things didn't look so good. He didn't wait for me to get my craft together before arriving on the scene. He came to me when I was at my worst and He revealed His loving kindness to me in the midst of my rebellion as He went to the cross. Greater love has no man die. What Jesus showed me there, and I pray that He's showing you now again, is that He is the ruling, shepherding, Savior King that your heart and my heart is in dire need of. 
pray that he would enable you and I in these moments to worship him in spirit and truth. Like in short, what we need is we need to be enabled to respond to him in joy-filled, surrendered, generous worship. And that's the question, right? We started out with it. Question that I think Matthew's wrestling with. Like, what is your response to the birth of Jesus today? Your response to this truth that this ruling, shepherding king of the world came in the flesh to save you from your sin. And have you been living in fear somehow? Have you been living in indifference somehow? How have you been living in indifference or fear? These are questions for your gospel community to be asking. Don't get distracted from that. How have you been living in indifference? And how have you been living in dependence on what you can actually know with your mind or what you can do with your hands? How have you been living in open rebellion to King Jesus? And what would it look like for you to to move from those places moving forward and live in joy-filled, surrendered, generous worship of Jesus. He is the ruling, shepherding king who came to save you. The question is, how will you respond to the birth of Jesus? Pray. Father, I ask that you would continue your work in our hearts as we uh, close our time in worship and communion. And uh, I pray that you would just make um, your cross and your empty tomb Um, central. Father, help us to respond to you in worship and joy and adoration. Jesus. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.